Greetings in Jesus who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Kenneth Filkins writes, A man fell into a pit and couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, It's logical that somebody would fall down there. A Pharisee said, Only bad people fall into pits. A news reporter wanted the exclusive story on the man's pit. Confucius said, if you had listened to me, you wouldn't be in that pit. Buddha said, your pit is only a state of mind. A realist said, that's a pit. A scientist calculated the pressure necessary, the PSI, to get him out of the pit. A geologist asked him to appreciate the rock strata in the pit. Taxman asked if he was paying taxes on the pit. Building inspector asked if he had a permit to dig a pit. An evasive person came along and uh, avoided the subject of the pit altogether. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. An optimist said, things could be worse. Pessimist said, things will get worse. Jesus, seeing the man, took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Those of us who had fallen into the miry clay, and he took us out, sat us on a rock, and uh, put a new song in our hearts. Well, I think you're in a pretty safe place tonight. Someone who likes to play with statistics wrote, how to stay safe in this world. Avoid riding in automobiles because they're responsible for 20% of all fatal accidents. Do not stay at home because 17% of all accidents occur in the home. Avoid walking on streets or sidewalks because 14% of all accidents occur to pedestrians. Avoid traveling by air or water or rail because 16% of all accidents involve these forms of transportation. Of the remaining 33%, 32% of all deaths occur in hospitals. Above all else, avoid hospitals. You'll be pleased to learn that only decimal 001% of all deaths occur in worship services in church. And these are usually related to previous physical disorders. Therefore, logic tells us that the safest place for you to be at any given point in time is at church. And uh, Bible study midweek, that, that's even safer yet. Well, some of you are asking me about my age, so I think I'll indicate that, but make you uh, think about it for a little while first. And um, I'd like you to count up the letters of a Bible character's name. He was a daddy that became a mummy, lived some of the time in Egypt, had a father called Jacob, had 11 brothers and one sister called Dinah. And you count up the letters of his name and multiply times four and add nine, that's my age. So count up how many letters are in his name, multiply times four and add nine. That's, uh, I just had a birthday recently, so that makes me, uh, I add nine at this point. This evening, my topic is foundational principles, and I'm specifying two of them, teach children and love children. First of all, the biblical instruction for parents and others who may be delegated by parents to teach. First of all, I'd like to consider 
the uh, command to teach children. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, says Ephesians 6, verse 4. Ephesians 6, 4. But bring them up in the nurture, the discipline, and the admonition. That's the teaching of the Lord. Bring them up in the admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4. Then also, from the Old Testament uh, instruction, Moses to children of Israel, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 7. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 7. Probably has a familiar ring to you parents. Thou shalt teach them, that is, the commands of the word of God, which shall be in your heart, first of all. In verse 7, thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up, and when thou drivest down the road, and when thou doest the chores, etc. Deuteronomy 6, 7. And then also Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9. Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thou thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. You got some grandpas and grandmas here? Probably not too many. But yes, that's the responsibility of parents and even grandparents to teach. So that's the command. Secondly, the content. <clears throat> teaching about God, first of all. Teaching the reality of God. That God exists, that God is real, just as the book of Genesis begins. In the beginning, God, he is, he always has been, he always will be. Teach the reality of God so that children will learn to trust God. The reality of God, knowing his attributes, we don't use that word with children, his characteristics, uh, what he's like, how he loves them, so that they will trust God. So this means that children will be taught to talk to God. I... Uh, made a practice, as I'm sure many of you have, of when we embark on a journey, to pray to our Father in heaven. I remember being in whiteout conditions as I was driving our children to school one time, and I said, uh, would you please pray that we can somehow, uh, I can stay on the road here, and they said, we have been, Dad, we've been praying. The supper table tonight, we, uh, I was reminded by wife of... Uh, Story about Peppa. Peppa was a dog, is a dog, a friend of mine in Guatemala. I have a daughter, we have a daughter, Karen, in Guatemala. Lives uh, just outside Guatemala City, serves under men and air missions. And um, there's two children there, Gabriel and Leo. And they like this dog, Peppa. And they noticed one day that it's a fairly young dog. Peppa wasn't eating. Peppa would go under an old car sitting there and didn't want to come out. They'd coax Peppa to eat. And uh, Peppa was just very lethargic, uh, looked very sick, inactive, uh, wouldn't eat. And this went on for several days and it looked pretty grim. And so one morning when little Gabriel, about age four, uh, went out to see what his daddy was doing, he noticed that his daddy was out in, uh, in a bit of an orchard there and he was digging a hole. He said, What's, what are you doing, daddy? Well, I'm digging a hole so that uh, uh, I think Peppa's going to die today. It looks That's the way it looks and I won't have much time after work. So uh, getting this hole ready so we can bury Peppa. Well, Gabriel said, could, could we pray for Peppa? Oh yes, let's pray for Peppa. So there by the, by the grave, they knelt down and they prayed for Peppa. And um, it was several hours that went by and they noticed that Peppa had emerged from underneath his favorite place when he was sick under the car. And he went to the place where he got fed, and he started to eat. 
and Peppa made a full recovery. And Gabriel was very thankful to God. And I think he learned about trusting God, the reality of God, and that God cares about little boys, but also about young dogs that young boys care about. Talk to God and also talk about God, not just on Sundays, but through the week. Teach children to um, give to God and tell about God's interventions in family life. So the children will learn the reality of God and learn to trust God. So in our case, uh, one thing that our children know about is uh, our oldest daughter who has had a birth injury. Uh, we noticed that her right arm was not moving at all, and this went on for months, and uh, expressed concern to the doctor. And um, We prayed about it, and then... Was it suddenly or gradually she began to move this arm? And the doctor admitted afterwards he never thought that this paralysis would uh, be anything but paralysis. I remember one of my uh, talking to, I teach in a Christian school, I was talking to some of the parents of some of my children and uh, telling me how when they came to this particular church, it was it would have been an older setting coming to a beach Amish church, that their uh, boy, young boy, got very sick. Didn't know what to do about it. Looked uh, pretty serious. They came to the preachers and they didn't anoint him, but they put their hands on him and prayed for him. And he made a remarkable recovery. And uh, I said, does your son know about this? Well, no, they don't know that they'd ever told him. I said, I think you should tell your, your son about that. And he's grown into a godly man. So secondly, what should we teach about God? Teach the compassion of God. Like as a father pitieth his children, teach the compassion of God so that children will love God. And one of the best ways to communicate this to children is for parents, dads in particular, to be a loving parent. I was talking with an individual back in Ontario recently who sort of uh, has one mental picture of Jesus and another one of God. And, and she's trying to reconcile the two as being a, a loving God. I don't think she has trouble with Jesus, but God the Father. You know, if you don't have a compassionate, caring Father, then it's more difficult uh, simply because... Uh, the picture that a child has of God is likely going to be the picture that he has of his earthly father. So, teach them to love God. God is a friend, helps them in times of trouble. Thirdly, teach the goodness of God. God has given us many gifts, whether we're young or old. And so, we should uh, thank God, therefore. The goodness of God leading us to thank God in our prayers, in songs that mention gifts. In one of my visits to the States years ago when our children were young, um, I was there at the breakfast table and they started singing a song that I taught my children and uh, other children for that matter. Uh, what's the tune? Thank, thank you, God, for Jesus uh, bringing in the sheaves. It's the tune. Maybe we'll try it here in case you want to teach your children this. Actually, I think it might have been 
the prayer before the meal that they sang that song. Fourthly, teach about the authority of God. God in love chastens us, the authority of God, so that children will learn to obey God. Teach the authority of God leading to obedience to God. Stories of God's judgment on sin. Uh, and as parents, if we can be a consistent authority figure, that will be very helpful also. So first of all, in regard to teaching, teach about God. Now, secondly, part B, teach a proper view of self. There are some steps to building uh, a proper sense of worth. Uh, many of these are found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm going to read some of those verses there as I try to make these points. First of all, welcome the baby. So the story here is of Hannah, and she really longed for a baby. And she treasured little baby Samuel. So the idea of being a, a wanted child should be communicated by words as well as by attitude, whether it's a toddler or whether it's a teen. So I think parents, uh, children are generally smart enough to realize that um, they're viewed by their parents as a, a bother, an inconvenience, a hindrance to parental plans, or whether they're really appreciated and uh, welcomed. Secondly, pray for your child. Hannah said in verse 27, for this child I prayed. <clears throat> Sometimes uh, we pray audibly for our children. I think that reinforces in the child's mind the idea that he's significant to his parents and to the Heavenly Father. Thirdly, view your child as a gift from God. Hannah realized that God had given her Samuel, and he gave her three more sons and two more daughters, or two daughters following. Lo, children are heritage of the Lord, Robert, the psalmist said. Says your child senses that he's a gift from God Almighty, he'll sense, oh, I'm important to God, I have value. Fourthly, dedicate your child to God. I don't know if you do that formally, and I, and I, and I, I tend to do that when I hold a grandchild in my arms for the first time. And I remember I was dedicated at church when I was a, a baby. Worthless things are not dedicated. We realize that. Fifth, communicate to the child that he is special. So there was this special coat in chapter 2 and verse 19. His mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Communicate to the child that he is special. So hand-me-downs have their places, have their place, but also uh, new clothes, especially, I think, to a middle child. But our words to our children, our words about our children, we'll tell them whether we rate them above or below or equal to a vehicle or social media or living room furniture. Sixth, let the child minister before the Lord. Now this moves to uh, the example of Eli and uh, chapter 2 and verse 18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord being a child. So significant work, and any work for the Lord is significant. Significant work helps to give a child a realistic view of himself. So children can pray and children can sing and children can be a witness of God's love. Let them have an active part in family worship. We often took our children into prison. That was in the days when families could get into prison in Ontario, it's pretty tough now. But uh, we were part of prison ministry on some Sundays and other times, or in uh, homes of, of seniors, things like that. Let children have a part where they can. Seventh, encourage the child to respond to the Lord. 
So you know Samuel heard this voice. And Eli encouraged him to respond to the Lord. Eli didn't answer for him, but he guided him in an appropriate response. So a response to the Lord of reverence and, and uh, obedience is appropriate at any age. You know, sometimes a parent uh, hearing a child, hearing a question addressed to a, a child, they sort of take over and, and answer for the child. And I, I'm not sure if that, I think that's okay sometimes, but as a general pattern, I don't think it is a good idea because it may signal to the child that he's not um, capable or worthy of anything for himself. Of course, sometimes children are just very shy too and need to be encouraged to answer politely. An eighth thing, respect privacy. Second Samuel 3 and verse 2, Eli had his place, and Samuel had a different place, so respect privacy. Yes, children need supervision, but they also need some space as they mature. Ninth, assign work. Samuel had the job of opening the doors. Chapter 3 and verse 15 says, and Samuel lay until the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. So, I remember Barbara talking about mommy's big helper when they were children were small. So, I know for an efficient housekeeper, children can be in the way that you can do it faster and better than what a child can. But um, I think it's healthy for children to believe that they they have important tasks and they can do them. Tenth, give guidance, <clears throat> but not domination of a growing child. Give guidance to the child, but don't dominate. Some persons grow up with the understanding that they're unimportant to God, and they're unimportant to others, and that they're incapable of doing anything important, worthwhile that everybody can do everything better than what they can. So give guidance, but don't dominate a growing child. So some children grow up uh, viewing themselves as no good. I think it's important that we teach a proper view of self. If we don't, they may struggle with feelings or a lack of worth throughout their days. They may grapple with insecurity. They may wrestle with an inferiority complex. They may doubt whether life is worth living because they lack a sense of worth. I'm not saying about having an inflated sense of their worth. I'm simply saying a realistic that we would think soberly, not more highly or more lowly than we ought to think of ourselves. Sometimes children may strike out in a conspicuous or rebellious or even bizarre way. And uh, children who don't have a proper view of themselves may create discipline problems in the home or in the school, uh, so partly simply to be noticed, um, spilling milk deliberately or throwing a game onto the floor or making odd noises in public. As young people, they may make the noise of uh, uh, powerful cars uh, laying rubber on the highway or dressing loudly or withdrawing into a shell. And as adults, we may exaggerate or attempt to dominate or feel worthless, and not feel good about ourselves at all. So I say, may we help our children to have healthy scriptural thoughts about themselves, to think soberly about themselves. May we help them to build a proper concept of self. Christ said, ye are of value, ye are of more value. And he bought us with a great price. With his precious blood, therefore we have great value. So these are some things to teach. We may teach with incidental instruction just in the course of the day. So, let's say um, father is trying to repair a piece of machinery, a lawnmower or a rototiller or something. And little Johnny is standing there and watching, and father can't get the nut off the bolt. 
and he's getting more frustrated and finally he picks up his wrench and he throws it across the yard. Johnny says, oh, that's how you deal with frustration. Mother is uh, busy getting ready for company and she doesn't have time to um, uh, accommodate a visitor who comes walking up the, the sidewalk and uh, she says in the hearing of a little Susie, I hope she doesn't stay long. I wish she hadn't come. Uh, I'm too busy. Well, then there's a knock on the door and uh, uh, hello, Mrs. Green. So happy to see you here. Yes, no, no problem. Yeah, just great. I'm so glad you dropped in. That sort of tone. Incidental instruction, positive or negative. And then there's planned instruction, like family worship and homeschool activities and things like that. All right, we've been talking about God, his love for us, and how we should feel toward him. Let's sing the little song, Jesus Loves Me, a verse of that. Now let's think about the second thing, loving our children. You'll find something on the back side of your paper. The Bible tells mothers and by implication fathers to love their children. The older women are to teach the younger children. The younger, the older women are teaching the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children, according to Titus 2.4. So, I ask myself, uh, what, what does it look like when parents love their children? How do parents express their love for children? What does love provide for them? And I have, what, here about 10 different ways. <clears throat> First of all, love provides verbal expression. And so the father said to his son, Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know, God as our heavenly father um, gives us an example of these points too. And I'd like to point that out this evening. We have the example of God giving verbal expression there in Matthew 3.17. But we also have God the Father's example in John 3.16 to us as his children. Let's say together John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God tells us repeatedly that he loves his children. The love of God is a major biblical theme. So at home, I remember Barb saying to our little children, I love you. She'd be holding them on her lap. And I'd say something like this, I love you too. Now she does it with the grandchildren. I think it's good to reassure children of parental love after disciplining them, after giving them a spanking. Isn't that when our Heavenly Father seems closest to us after we've had a, a more difficult experience, a disciplinary experience, a chastening? Now, I read some years ago about some um, researchers uh, going into a Midwest high school, and they wanted the administration there to identify the 10 best adjusted students in the school. And I had one question for them as they talked to, to these 10 students. When's the last that you heard your parents say that they loved you or words the equivalent of that? And all 10 of them had been assured of their parental love verbally in the previous 24 hours. Then they spoke to the 10 worst adjusted students in the school, asked the same question when did your parents last say that they loved you? And of those 10, there was only one who had thought they remembered their parents saying, I love you 
words to that effect, but didn't remember when it was. That sort of stuck with me over the years. You know, we can be so quick to nag and to scold our children. How about assuring them of our love? This is my beloved son, God the Father said, in whom I am well pleased. So words of commendation, words of recognition, words of personal attachment. This is my beloved son. Secondly, love provides the necessities of life. <clears throat> First Timothy 5, verse 8. If any provide not for his own, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. First Timothy 5, 8. So it's important, yes, we take for granted, I guess, suppose that, the necessities of life, although there are quite a few parents in America who actually don't do that because they're on drugs or whatever. Now let's consider God's example, Luke 11. <clears throat> Luke 11 and verse 11 uh, has the words of Jesus. And he draws the comparison of a loving earthly father and the heavenly father. He says, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? If he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? So, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And uh, it's good to point out here, I think, that God our Father doesn't give us everything that we want. And we are wise if we don't give everything to our children that they want. Next, thirdly, love provides appropriate discipline. Proverbs 13, verse 24, He that loveth his son chasteneth him betimes, or gives him discipline at an appropriate time, or early enough. Appropriate discipline. Proverbs 13, verse 24. And... Uh, God, our Father, connects love and chastening. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Every son, that's truly a son. Let's think a little bit about discipline. I'm actually going to expand quite a bit more on this tomorrow evening. Preventing discipline problems and then correcting problems. But I'd like to think about the verse where it says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Or Colossians says, Provoke not them not to anger, lest they be discouraged. So just how can a parent frustrate, anger, discourage, dispirit their children? So this is going to be a negative approach to this particular topic. One way we frustrate children, a child in our home, is if we have favorites among the children. You know, Isaac and Rebecca, they reaped um, bitter harvest from the seeds of favoritism. And it wasn't much better in the next generation as uh, Jacob favored Joseph above his 11 brothers. Children somehow seem to have an innate sense of what's fair. And sometimes they're not accurate as far as what is fair and what isn't. But sometimes uh, parents uh, obviously favor one of the children. And Joseph suffered. He was the favorite child, right? But he suffered greatly because of Jacob's favoritism. Another way to frustrate children is by hypocrisy. When children say one thing and do another, it's hard for a young child to figure out. It's easy to exasperate an older child. So take, for instance, a father who uh, disciplines his son for being unkind to his sister, and then his uh, father is sarcastic and uh, belittling to his wife or one of the other children. Parents influence children largely by what they do. 
not by what they say. Now, that's not to negate that we shouldn't teach our children. But if it doesn't, if it's not accompanied by appropriate action, then it's, it tends to be frustrating. One young man told uh, his dad he didn't pay much attention to the little teaching sessions that his father gave him, but he said, your most influential moments were your most inadvertent ones. I imitated what you really were, not what you said. It's difficult for parents to lift their children to a higher level than the one on which they live. Someone said, uh, till a boy is 15, he does what his father says. After that, he tends to do what his father does. Certain family went to a church that prohibited its members from going to the movies. I think that's a good idea. But the father regularly took his family to the movies in a city some miles away. Not a good idea. The parents told the children not to say anything about it to their friends. And uh, so this particular child in adulthood reporting this uh, said that he was scarred by this hypocrisy. Another way to frustrate children is to show a lack of genuine interest. And uh, it's not so much by words, by, but by attitudes and body language. You know, the man Job was very interested in his offspring. He offered sacrifices for his children regularly. The young man found himself in trouble with the law. Father was contacted. This is four o'clock in the morning. The parent was not happy, arrived at the police station, and uh, the father's car was held as evidence. And uh, the detective said, your car, aren't you concerned about your son? Huh? As he left, he said, make sure the windows of my car are closed in case it rains. We should have a genuine interest, and I think you as parents do here. Now, thinking a little more about uh, types of discipline and frustrating, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the discipline of the Lord. No discipline isn't the way God would have it. We had a good devotional last evening about Abraham, who would command his children after him. The Lord knew about that. Samuel didn't know how where to draw the line. His sons walked not in his ways. So no discipline will uh, frustrate children. So will inconsistent discipline. Child is uh, likely going to lack security if one time he's punished for an offense and the other time it's just let go. Don't know how to figure things out. Parents who uh, smile and misbehavior when a child is young and then uh, try to eradicate it later. No, it's not so much the severity of the punishment, but the certainty of the punishment, the certainty of the discipline. So we're talking about consistency of discipline. Then also it's possible to have such harsh discipline that it's counterproductive. Let your moderation be known unto men. Your, your sweet reasonableness is, is one translation there. And so we should be reasonable in our discipline. Godly parents want to correct misbehavior, not crush the spirit of the child. Don't be like one dad uh, whose son said, my dad was used a cannon, a cannon to kill a mosquito. In being firm, fathers must be reasonable and sympathetic and kind. It doesn't work either just to threaten discipline by nagging or scolding or empty threats. Eli, it seems chided, but didn't chasten his sons. He restrained them not. He talked, but he didn't act in matters of discipline. And then the big problem, 
at least according to James Dobson. The big problem in discipline is anger. So a rule is for parents in correcting their children and trying to gain, have, help their children to gain control of themselves. Parents themselves must be in control of themselves if they're going to be effective in teaching children to be in control of themselves. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Let not your hand of wrath come down upon your son, we might say also. So inappropriate anger, probably the most common parental error in discipline. And, and this can include yelling. Yelling at children can be very harmful. Then there's this matter of jumping to conclusions. So uh, when one of our children uh, were, was young, she had this tendency to, after being taken upstairs to go to bed, and I'd tuck her in and pray with her, she would come parading down the steps and have one excuse or another, uh, needing a drink or... She would come downstairs and, and we thought, she really needs to be taught to remain up in bed when, she, when she's been put to bed. So I thought, all right, next time this happens, I'm gonna deal with it. So she came, I heard her coming down the steps, bitter pat, and um, okay, Brenda. Thankfully, I had presence of mind to say, why did you come downstairs? She looked up at me and she said, Daddy, I forgot to kiss you goodnight. And I thought, yeah, that's right. So she gave me a kiss and happily went upstairs again. I was so glad I hadn't punished her for wanting to kiss me goodnight. So don't jump to conclusions. That can, uh, that can be very, very harmful. You know, that's the basic idea of a judge not. That you be not judged. <clears throat> so that's a little bit about appropriate discipline. Fourthly, now back to our outline. Give comfort and warmth. Isaiah 66 and verse 13. Those who re read the Bible with feminist eyes uh, tend to get a lot of mileage out of this particular phrase in Isaiah 66 and verse 13, because it says, as one whom his mother comforteth, this is God speaking, as one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you. And there's also then, as far as fathers are concerned, in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 11, verse 11 of 2 Thessalonians 2, this is Paul writing to the Thessalonians. You know how he exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. So we have God's example further in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we can then bring comfort to others. So, we should provide comfort. <clears throat> and warm feelings for our children. A sympathetic understanding. So uh, there was a boy who fell and got a scratch on his knee, a bit of a bruise, and he came to his dad, and his dad was reading the newspaper, and he said, Daddy, I, I fell and I hurt myself. And Daddy said, uh-huh. And so he tried again, and he said, Daddy, I, I fell. I, I, it, it's bleeding a little bit. And the father said, uh-huh. Then he tried a third time. Daddy, I, 
I, I, I fell, it hurts, hurts a little bit. Father put down his newspaper and said, well, I can't do anything about it, can I? The little fellow said, you could have said, oh. Holding and cuddling of children is uh, basically a necessity. There have been some studies at least years ago of children in orphanages who uh, were not uh, held or, or had interaction with adults, and a bunch of them died from emotional starvation, I guess we'd call it. Now, back in 1930 or so, there was a publication put out by the U.S. government, or a branch of the U.S. government, the U.S. Children's Bureau. And this was the advice to parents. So you get a picture of how things were viewed um, about 90 years ago, which might explain something about my generation or a little younger, older. This was the advice to parents to about their children. Never hug or kiss them. Never let them sit on your lap. If you must, kiss them once on the forehead when you say goodnight. Shake hands with them in the morning. So I referenced Brenda before. Remember she used to come down in the morning. She would have heard me give that quotation. And she'd come downstairs and she'd hold out her hand. And she'd say, good morning, father. <laughs> I'd grab her and give her a hug. Now, the testimony of Lee Strobel, who is a, now has become a Christian apologist. He writes, I found out when my mother was dying that to my father, I was an unwanted pregnancy. They had three children and were ready to move on with their lives when my mom got pregnant. My father was a good man, but we never connected emotionally. We're talking about warmth, comfort. We never connected emotionally and things got so bad between us that during an argument on the eve of my high school graduation, he told me, I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. This kind of coldness and distance often leads people toward atheism, which he had been upon. Because if their earthly father was disappointed in them, they sure don't want a heavenly father. That was exactly the case with many famous atheists in history. Recent study from the University of California found that a father may be a pillar of the church. But if he doesn't provide warmth and affirmation to his kids, they will likely not follow him into the faith. Love provides warmth and affection and comfort. Next, love provides teaching. Andy Fathers, Ephesians 6, 4 says, bring them up in the admonition of the Lord, the teaching of the Lord. We talked a little about that earlier. I'd like to expand on it a little more. That was Ephesians 6, 4. And God's example from uh, Psalm 32, verse 8. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. Psalm 32, 8. So love teaches right and wrong. Love teaches good habits. Love teaches the difference between truth and lying. From our local paper back in Ontario, I clipped this about teacher, what teachers can't say. Several teacher friends say they're no longer permitted to say a student's behavior is wrong, or even that a student has made a wrong choice. Instead, when a child makes a wrong choice, engages in bad behavior, is unruly or non-compliant, teachers are to say such behavior is unexpected teacher to child please sit down child does not sit down teacher to child my that was unexpected no doubt a cold chill races down the child's spine 
For most children, unexpected it would be an extended lunch period, a snow day, or finding the spelling test has been canceled. Of course, there are committed groups and studies funded by grants that stand behind the new naming of unexpected, but that doesn't negate the fact that it's painful for adults to wrap their heads around such convoluted thinking, let alone children. Teachers are told to say, are also told they are not to say a child lied. Instead, they're to say a child has told an untruth. It's hard to imagine untruth catching on, yet I can hear the words of George Washington retooled for the 21st century. I cannot tell an untruth. Lying is out, untruthing is in. You might also say a child is veracity challenged or has limited abilities conveying the full scope of reality, but you can't say lying. If, lie, if a lie is now an untruth, then cheating must be viewed as utilizing unapproved outside resources. <laughs> Fighting in the cafeteria becomes exercising the full forward thrust of arms and legs. Why not call behavior what it really is? Why not simply speak the truth? Playing games with words, clouding a child's mind, and obscuring the consequences of choices will produce results that will be anything but unexpected. Found that interesting as a teacher. So, the things of creation, how things work, <clears throat> teaching. And, of course, it's important by example, more as caught than taught, as you heard. Uh, that would be true of priorities and prayer and how to teach unselfishness. You can't teach. You have, you have to demonstrate unselfishness. Behavior in church, giving to the Lord. It's important to start young. Take the teaching responsibility seriously. Don't permit now what you want to eradicate later. Train up a child, not a teen, not a young adult, in the way that he should go. Here's what my friend Menno Simon says. It is the greatest and foremost care of the pious that their children fear God, do righteously, and be eternally saved. I think that's your goal as parents that their children fear God, do righteously, and be eternally saved. So on page 951 of the Complete Writings of Men of Simons, he says, Study to the utmost of your power to lead your children on the way of life and keep them from the way of death. Pray to Almighty God for the gift of his grace, that in his great mercy he may lead and keep them in the straight path and keep them there, leading them by his Holy Spirit. Watch over their souls as over your own soul. Watch over their salvation as over your own souls. Teach them and instruct them, admonish, correct, and chastise them as circumstances require. Keep them away from good-for-nothing children, from whom they hear and learn nothing but lying, cursing, swearing, fighting, and mischief. Direct them to reading and writing. Teach them to spin and other handicrafts suitable, useful, and proper to their years and persons. If you do this, you will live to see much honor and joy in your children. Sixth, love provides forgiveness. Ephesians 4, 32, it'll tell you what to do. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you, and in Psalm 103, we read, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And uh, he knows what we're made of. Forgiveness, Ephesians 4.32, and God's example in Psalm 103. So don't delay to forgive. Don't hold it for a period of time so the, the child sort of gets the point. Don't label a child you're always doing this. You're always dropping things. Ah, oh, you're just a little crybaby. And as children grow up, it's important that parents, when we blow it, apologize to our children, I think, rather than saying, yeah, 
I'm perfect. I don't need to apologize. Seventh, love provides security. Colossians 3.21 has the thought of provoking not our children to wrath, lest they be discouraged, lest they feel insecure. God's example, Deuteronomy 33. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Security. <clears throat> well, harmony between husband and wife is a great means of providing security for a child. So is sincerity. So is having boundaries and consistency. Um, told that Americans on average move every five years. Might be true of Mennonites too, I'm not sure. But um, frequent moving. Or I should say half of the children move within a five-year period. Hearing continual criticism um, militates against security. Praise and appreciation honestly presented helps. You know, this idea about um, husbands loving their wives and vice versa. I remember years ago when I was young father, hearing the statement, the best thing a father can do for his children is to love their mother. Ah, that's sort of cheesy. I don't know about that. But I really think it is. I think that's, there's a lot of truth in that. Certainly very important. The eighth way to love your children is to give them time, provide time. Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> Verses 13 to 16, as the account of the mothers of Jerusalem coming and wanting Jesus to bless them and their children, young children, evidently. And what was Jesus' reaction? Quite a contrast to the disciples. They brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. When Jesus saw it, he was not a happy camper. And he said, and it says, he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. So this is what he did with these children. He saw them. Okay, do you see your children as Jesus sees them? He took them up in his arms. Okay, there's that warmth and affirmation. Put his hands upon them, the personal touch, and blessed them. I like those word pictures of Jesus. God always has time for us. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call unto me and I will answer thee any time of day or night. Parents looking back after the children are grown often say, if only I had spent more time with my children. Don't know if I've ever heard a parent say, you know what, I spent way too much time with my children. Now that they're growing up, I realize that. Here's a little poem. My hands were busy through the day. I didn't have much time to play. The little games you asked me to, I didn't have much time to do. I'd wash your clothes, I'd sew, I'd cook. But when you'd bring your picture book and ask me, please, to share your fun, I'd say, a little later, son. I'd tuck you all safe at night and hear your prayers turn a light, then tiptoe softly to the door. I wish I had stayed a minute more. For life is short, the years run past. The little boy grows up too fast. No longer is he at your side, his precious secrets to confide. The picture books are put away. There are no longer games to play. No good night kiss, no prayers to hear. That all belongs to yesteryear. My hands once busy now are still. The days are long and hard to fill. I wish I could go back and do the little things you asked me to. Sometimes as a substitute for time, parents buy stuff. American children get an average of 70 new toys a year, I'm told. 
Dobson says, we're so busy giving our children what we never had, we forget to give them what we did have. Father back in Ontario gave his father, his son, I think, every Fisher Price toy that came on the market, at least anything related to boys. But he didn't spend much time with his son. And we as Christian fathers can be involved in good things. I know there was an evangelist who is used quite widely here in the States. Died at a relatively early age. People came from far and wide to the funeral. He had a wayward son. Folks would talk to him and say, you had a wonderful father. The son said, so I've heard. I never knew it by experience. He never had time for me. People involved in broad issues generally neglect those closest to them. I've seen too many damaged children whose parents were leaders. Something that I read. And so for you as uh, maybe business leaders or church leaders, people always involved in broad issues generally neglect those closest to them. I've seen too many damaged children whose parents were leaders. Number nine, love provides a sense of worth. Talked about this somewhat already. First Samuel 1 Samuel 1.27. And uh, God's example of providing a sense of worth, Luke 12, verse 7, where Jesus says, ye are of value. So time for me to conclude, so I think I'll go on to the next point. Love provides a spiritual atmosphere. So Luke 2 gives the account of uh, Jesus' parents taking him to Jerusalem to worship. Joseph and Mary, <clears throat> providing a spiritual atmosphere. And what is God's example? He gives his children the church. So let me conclude by uh, reading my opinion anyway, my observation of how fathers can teach Poor attitudes toward the brotherhood. So here goes. Got 10 of them here. 10 ways, if you, uh, 10 ways to teach wrong attitudes toward the church, toward the brotherhood. Number one, have a critical attitude in general. Find fault freely. Specialize in negative criticism. Sharpen your tongue. Don't praise the superintendent or usher or song leader. Number two, demonstrate the priority of work at home in comparison with God's work. When there's a choice between attending prayer meeting or mowing the lawn, by all means, mow the lawn. Three, mimic idiosyncrasies of the brothers and sisters. All congregations have some odd and amusing characteristics among the members. Be hilarious in making fun of them. Four, be apathetic. Never pray for the church or its leaders in the hearing of your children. Five, have roast preacher for Sunday dinner on a regular basis. Complain about his overtime preaching. Comment on his dusty shoes and frayed shirt. Mock his grammatical errors. Downgrade his concerns for the church. Six, Refuse assignments. Avoid the potential snare of pride of office by refusing to serve as a teacher or usher or superintendent. 
merely go through the motions of church membership. Seven, be subtly rebellious. Cultivate a reluctant, complaining spirit toward church requirements and expectations. In other words, crowd the line. Eight, make a practice of sleeping in church. Show your child that the message and messenger is relatively unimportant. Nine, be an innovator regarding your appearance and amusements and activities. Introduce things not appreciated by the more spiritually minded. And 10, be defensive about your children when concern is registered. Stick up for them right or wrong. Some children were asked, why do you love God? The answer, I guess it just runs in the family. Works that way with the church too. Parents, teach your children, love your children. Uh, the Bible command to parents, uh, we can wrap it up with the uh, letters TLC. T for teach, L for love, C for chasten. That'll be my topic tomorrow evening. Thank you for your attention this evening. And uh, maybe we can have a closing song. <laughs>